Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to episode 30 of Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, up to my armpits in tourists in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, drowning in tourists in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because we love scientific experiments bodily fluids, and heroic quests. Hello, Dan. Hello. (laughs) How are you doing? Ah, very well. In my now plushy studio. Yes. With my moving blankets everywhere. But uh, yeah, (laughs) I love how dead it sounds in here. It's it's glorious. Yes. Perfectly acoustically treated new studio space. Well, not perfectly treated, (laughs) but good enough. (laughs) <laughs> and and how are you? How How's your week been, Conrad? Oh, it's been pretty exciting. I've been spending some time with my big brother. And before that, I also got the chance to go to an evening with Marcus Zusak, the ah. Australian author of The Book Thief, right. which was a really fun time. And uh, he's a great guy, a very funny public speaker. And during the talk, he was talking about how He wasn't too sure about the film adaptation of The Book Thief. People asked him how he felt about it. And he said, you know, there are good things and bad things whenever something of yours is adapted. Mm. You know, it's Mm. never always the way that you imagined it. So I asked him, how did he feel about the fact that John Williams at this stage in his life, who never does a score for anybody other than Star Wars and Steven Spielberg, sought out the job of scoring The Book Thief because the book meant so much to him. Hmm. And Marcus said, ah, you'll never believe it. I got to meet him. Wow. (laughs) Yes, they set a date for him to meet him. He was really stressed and excited and then really, really stressed because the driver took him to the wrong place and he was 40 minutes late. Oh! And he was running into this hotel and, oh, Mr. Williams, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he said, John Williams, for all of his achievements and accolades and prizes and Oscars, is the loveliest man on the planet. He was looking after Marcus Susak and saying, oh, you look really stressed. Let me get you a drink. It's fine. Don't worry. And he just has this sort of zen warmth about him and is a lovely man so there you go wow movie story from marcus zusak (laughs) (laughs) love stories like that so conrad anything in the mailbag today yes we had a response from chad rommel on twitter who of course was the person who put dragon slayer on the oubliette roulette for us And he listened to the episode in the verdict where we pitched it back into the oubliette (laughs) after a toss of the coin of fate. Yes. And he said, another superb episode. I agree with both of your observations on the film. Perhaps I'm particularly enamoured. It's something that he remembers from his youth. He was heavily into Dungeons and Dragons at the time. And Vermithrak's pejorative seared his visage into my memory. Ah. So there we go. And he said he did enjoy the dark narrative of the film. It eschews the usual bright, bombastic tone of the usual fantasy epics. And I think he's right on that. Mm. Well, I mean, I 100% agree. Um, Whereas Serge, our friend of Cold Crash Pictures... 
Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. He said that he went in search of an antidote to the stale humdrum storytelling of Dragon Slayer and came across the subject of one of our previous episodes, Willow, uh, which he very much enjoyed. He said, complete with likeable characters, emotional motivations, and a two-headed dragon that's as expertly realised as Vermithrax. Ah, yes. Great throwback. Yes, it's Phil Tippett again, and it's the same technique. It's go motion again, although several years later. Ooh, right. Uh, I actually got a comment from Redmar61, Antonio. He's the guy that suggested disturbing behavior. And he said that he listened to our episode and he loved it. And he has to admit that he doesn't really remember that movie that much. He just had a massive crush on Katie Holmes, as I'm (laughs) sure many teenage boys of the 90s did. Yes, I think that's fair enough. And finally, we had a comment from Brian Kletch on Facebook. When I posted a message saying, all hail Vermithrax, he replied with, the best cinematic dragon put on film. Ah. So I don't think he's alone in that opinion. No, not at all. (laughs) I guess it's time to reveal the movie that we will be discussing this episode. Conrad? Yes, I shall venture forth to the oubliette. Ah, yes. Right, here we go. Oh. Ew. What is it? It's all very organic in here. Oh, a bit squelchy. Yeah, it's all sort of red and slimy with cells floating around. I'll just reach in. Ooh. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> okay, I found something. <laughs> the Tuck Pendleton machine, zero defects. <sighs> You might have to shake that off a little bit. Yeah, it's disgusting. I'm going to need the Purell (laughs) industrial strength. The film that we have plucked from the oubliette for this episode is the 1987 science fiction comedy adventure film directed by Joe Dante, Inner Space, starring Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy. Ah, Joe Dante again. Mm, yes. The director of The Hole, which we threw back in The Hole. <laughs> so uh, what's this movie about? So Dennis Quaid stars as Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton, an alcoholic Top Gun washout who volunteers to be the first man to be miniaturised to microscopic proportions and steer a submersible pod around an unsuspecting lab rabbit. Alas, during the experiment, the laboratory is raided by corrupt corporate competitors who intend to sell the technology to the highest bidder. In an effort to save Tuck, the lead scientist flees and eventually injects our miniature hero into the backside of hapless Jack Putter, a perpetually nervous hypochondriac supermarket cashier played by Saturday Night Live alumni Martin Short. With the help of Tuck's ex-girlfriend, the plucky reporter Lydia, played by none other than Meg Ryan in a very early role, the unlikely duo have to coexist and collaborate to solve the mystery of what's happened and reverse the miniaturization before Tuck runs out of oxygen, all while evading the deadly prosthetic hands of the sinister assassin Mr. Igo. Wow. <laughs> That's the best synopsis I've ever heard you (laughs) (laughs) recite. Amazing. It's a pretty exciting film. So, yeah, let's take a break and talk about it. Let's do that. Refreshing. We're back again discussing Inner Space, the 1987 science fiction comedy directed by Joe Dante. Dan, you had never seen this before, am I right in thinking? Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this film. I don't know how this slipped me by because it's not a cheap cult movie or anything. No, it's a Steven Spielberg production. So, yeah, it's really an interesting case where a large budgeted science fiction summer blockbuster just didn't bust blocks at all. (laughs) (laughs) You ask people about it and very few people have heard about it, which is very strange. Yeah, it's interesting as well because it's about 
miniaturization. So they shrink someone so tiny that they're in this pod mm. spaceship, I guess, that is able to enter into someone's bloodstream and explore the inside of a human body. Mm. But when I first started watching it, I was reminded of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, oh, which right, came out yeah. only two years later. Mm. Uh, also, I found out about another film that is pretty much an exact plot um, <laughs> called Fantastic Voyage, which came out in 1966. Yeah. I did take a look at Fantastic Voyage, just the trailer, and whoa, uh, <laughs> in a space did a much better job. Yeah, Fantastic Voyage is pretty much a psychedelic lava lamp in terms of its approach to what the inside of the human body looks like. <laughs> and this film, of course, had the benefit of industrial light and magic doing the special effects, and they wanted to visualise it as a dark and mysterious and a wet and gloopy space that would be quite fascinating to explore. Mm. And they were pretty successful because they won an Oscar for the effects and a lot of reviewers, including Roger Ebert, were convinced that the film contained actual microscopic medical footage, which it does not. No. It's all miniature models shot in camera with very little compositing. So the effects really hold up until today. And this is a film made in 1987. So this is like 30 years ago. Mm. And it still looks damn good. It looks amazing. There are some scenes that I am really questioning, how did they make them? Mm. And researching about it, there's the scenes with the fat cells. Yes. And they're just big balls of jello apparently <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they look so good they look like how i imagine fat cells to look mm. uh, they did some incredible green screen work on this movie as well it looks flawless yes the optical compositing is great all the scenes inside the pod where dennis quaid is looking out at the insides of martin short there is not a matte line to be seen in any of those scenes you really believe that he's there so it's incredible work visually yeah i, I also heard uh there's a scene with the blood cells mm. and they were just a whole bunch of balloons that they just blew down <laughs> this <laughs> this giant <laughs> corridor tube um and apparently there were so many of them made that everyone had a blood cell balloon yes <laughs> and that scene where dennis quaid's pod is flying rapidly down this arterial tunnel towards the heart where he could be destroyed and could kill Martin Short in the process, that used a translucent water tank set that was 40 feet long. Wow. Um, and it's all filled with this tiny glittery powder so that as the lights on the pod move around, it catches all of this sort of atmospheric stuff. And oh. It just looks incredible. Agreed, 100%. I can see why it won an Oscar yeah. for... Uh, <laughs> This visual fix, it's well-deserved. Yes, it is. And it even inspired an Epcot Center simulator ride, which was called Body Wars, which was unleashed in 1989. Although that had computer-generated elements that were composited in, so oh, not quite as good. Not as good. Yeah, so visually, it's an amazing film. In terms of the story... It's an interesting angle to take as well to introduce you to a main character or one of two main characters. It's really a buddy movie. It it's one of those great 80s buddy movies. It is a buddy movie, but I don't think the actors have a scene together until right at the end of the film. That's right. So Dennis yeah. Quaid is always in this pod. I would like to point out that we have covered Dennis Quaid in Pandorum, yes. who is also confined to a cockpit of a spaceship yeah, for true. the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. So he's used to sitting in control rooms pressing buttons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the chemistry and the humour between the characters of Tuck and Jack is amazing because they would have had to film them separately mm. and it feels so real. Mm. I loved the humour between them and the back and forth and the banter. It was mm. just, it was really <laughs> captivating and, and hilarious at the same time. Yes, and you can tell that they deliberately employed a very costly and time-consuming approach to achieve those scenes, but it really pays off, which is that in all of the scenes where they're talking to each other, the other actor was there. Oh. So in all of Martin Short's scenes where he's running around and he's talking to Tuck, 
Dennis Quaid was there. He was talking to him through an earpiece. They made a tiny earpiece and stuck it in his ear. And Dennis was just sort of behind the camera somewhere in a booth, hidden from Martin Short's view so they didn't make eye contact. But he, they were talking to each other. And similarly, when they went to Industrial Light and Magic to shoot all of Dennis Quaid's pod scenes where he was just trapped inside this pod set for days and days and days, yeah. Martin Short was outside the pod talking to him through a radio the entire time. And it really pays off because so much of it, especially with Martin Short, I think Dennis Quaid was very script-driven because he's a classical actor. Uh Martin Short is a Saturday Night Live comedian and very improvisational, so he would just be making shit up and Dennis would have to deal with it. And there is a little bit of a tension there, but it's a fun tension to watch because these two characters were not meant to be forced together Mm. at all. (laughs) One of them is an ex-military guy who's a bit of a burnout and, to be honest, he's a bit of an asshole (laughs) to begin with. He's really irresponsible. And Martin Short plays uh, Jack Putter, who is this twitchy, constantly anxious hypochondriac who's terrified of having this guy inside him to begin with and just not really equipped for what he needs to do to save Tuck's life. So it puts them in this situation where they've got to sort of work together to resolve this situation. And the the great thing about it is with Jack Putter is that although he is twitchy, energetic, ridiculous, overblown, screaming in scenes and so on, he's never irritating. Exactly. I hate slapstick, ridiculous comedy. Mm. And this was that. I felt like it was restrained enough. So every time that something silly happened, mm. it actually was funny. Yes. It wasn't just all the time silly. Oh, God, he falls over again. <laughs> like everything was very, very well timed. The comic timing of this movie was so precise and mm. perfect. And a good amount of physical comedy as well. Like Martin Short was hilarious in this movie. <laughs> I, I was in hysterics every time he did something just ludicrous. But you believed in that character. You could imagine someone being like that. He wasn't just absurd. No, and not showboating and irritating, which is what I get with, with some comedians like Chris Rock. There are some characters that are just as outrageous but they just grate on you because it just seems like scene-stealing, attention-grabbing. Whereas the thing with Martin Short is that no matter how ridiculous he is, at the heart of it, there is this really sweet-natured character that you really care about. Mm. Jack Putcher is a nice guy. There's nothing wrong with Jack. He's just not equipped to cope with everyday life, <laughs> particularly. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I also love that because of his sort of apprehensive nature, there was a great sense of character development. Mm. So throughout the film, having Tuck within him, Mm. giving him advice and pointers and and how to act, Jack became a much more confident guy. Mm. He evolved. And that's what you want in a film. You want (laughs) someone to evolve and change and, and triumph over their fears Mm. of life and he was a very confident assertive guy by the end of it and it was great to see you know you don't want a annoying silly scaredy cat guy to remain annoying and silly and scared of life (laughs) no you're right at the end of the movie when he finds out that the villains are after tuck again he quits his job rejects a very one-sided and unhealthy relationship that he's been having with his co-worker, Wendy, (laughs) who's hilarious in this movie, and turns to his doctor and says, I'm cured, I don't need you anymore, Mm. jumps into a convertible and races off to the rescue of his friend with no consideration for his own well-being whatsoever. And he's happy, all because of this relationship that he's had with Tuck, that that this has brought out the best in him. It's, It's wonderful. Mm, exactly. And also, uh, Tuck changes. Mm. He, he is selfish. He's reckless at the start. He's just always drunk. 
He's womanizing. Well, he's womanizing with his girlfriend, but he's being very <laughs> arrogant about it. And then at the end, he realizes that he loves her. He finds out that she's pregnant,、mm. and he comes to terms with his emotions and his feelings for her, and they get married. Yes, and that's great <laughs> as well. Seeing a previously unlikable character become likable and admirable、uh, mm. was great to see. Also. Yes, it is, and it's something that Jerry hints at in the music. So the music score is by Jerry Goldsmith, and we can talk <laughs> about that in more detail later. But there is a heroic theme in here that you think initially is for Tuck, but as the film progresses and it starts to appear in scenes of Jack and Tuck as a sort of a symbiotic <laughs> character. You realise that this theme is actually for the two of them. So at the beginning, this heroic fanfare is the heroism that Tuck aspires to. It's what he talks about in the very opening scene of the movie, where he's at this big military party and he's an embarrassment to his peers and gets drunk and falls over, and they beat him up in the kitchen. He <laughs>、yes. goes from that sort of stirring American brassy fanfare that he aspires to. By the end of the movie, he's actually earned it, and he's earned it through being with Jack and Jack teaching him a thing or two as well. It's、mm. he teaches him humility and consideration for others, and how he needs to treat Lydia better. That、mm. Lydia deserves better than him, and that unless he does something about it, he's going to lose her, and she will get someone better than him.、Mm. And it's just a beautiful relationship, and such an unlikely one. They're forced together in ridiculous circumstances, and and both of them benefit as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just great casting.、Mm. I don't normally like Dennis Quaid as an actor, but he was. Perfect for this role. Yeah, I've never seen him so young as well. He's one of those. <laughs> he's one of those actors that I assume was born forty years old.、Yeah. I don't know, like、yeah. Morgan Freeman, Steve Martin.、Yeah. I I just can't imagine those kind of actors as young guys. <laughs> so <laughs> it was cool to see him as a thirty-two-year-old at the time. I think,、mm. and he had that twinkle in his eye, and he had that charm and charisma, and it's so so perfect for this role.、Mm. And similarly, Martin Short was absolutely amazing as this klutz that kept falling <laughs> over or or putting his jacket on the back of a chair and not even managing to do that properly. <laughs> it was just wonderful to see the interactions between those characters, even though they were never. Physically in the same scene, just having that dialogue between them was just so fun. Yeah, it is, and this is the reason why. Whenever you say I don't like Dennis Quaid, I'm quite shocked because this was the first movie I saw him in.、Oh. I've always loved Dennis Quaid. Precisely because of this character, to me, he's always been Tuck Pendleton, right? And he does have this kind of roguish charm about him. That's why、yeah. Lydia, Meg Ryan, who we should also talk about, Lydia keeps finding herself coming back to him all the time, is because he's charming. Yes. And when he walks through the lab, and all the other women are swooning, and people are taking Polaroids with him before the experiment. Yeah, selfie Polaroids, I might add. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. You know the guys all want to be him and want to be friends with him, and the ladies all want to sleep with him. You know he's that kind of guy.、Hmm. But at the same time, that could easily be irritating. You know, a figure that you hate. But you kind of see with Dennis Quaid's performance that there is a fragility there. Yes, that underneath it all, he is not perfect, and he knows that he isn't, and he's struggling with it. So it's just so endearing. Both of them could easily have been really irritating characters, but they're both just adorable in this movie. Yeah. What What did you think about Lydia as a character, though? Lydia comes out of it better than I was expecting. Okay, she's your bog standard reporter character, but she's not in the sort of thankless girlfriend role that she was in in Top Gun, for example, where she played Goose's. Widow eventually,、mm. where she's just sort of there to be kind of cute and attractive, and then upset and never has a conversation about something other than the man in her life. Here, Lydia, I don't know whether she passes the Bechdel test. She may well do. Have you heard of the Bechdel test? 
No, what is this? It's to prove whether a movie represents women well. Is there a scene in the movie where two women speak to each other and not about men? And you'll be surprised the vast swathes of movies that do not pass this basic test. Right, okay. <laughs> Which is terrible. I'm not sure whether this one actually does that. I'm not sure whether Meg Ryan speaks to another woman about something other than men. But she does seem to be good at her job and she seems to be resourceful and plucky and sort of the only person in the movie, really, that has a command of what to do next. She is klutzy. Like, she has that thing where she's armed with a taser gun and fires it at Mr. Igo when he's holding yeah. Jack. I might point out as well, that's not how tasers work. Is it not? <laughs> well, because how tasers work is it's an electric charge, right? So yeah. when it shoots out that projectile, there's also supposed to be a wire attached to it. Oh. There isn't one in this film. It's oh. just a projectile that electrocutes them through Electricity passing through the air, I guess. Like, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't know. But, yeah, she misses Mr. Igo and gets Jack instead, which knocks him out so he's easier to just carry out of the restaurant. Yes. And she has scenes later on where she's firing a gun by accident where she's saying, everybody, into the miniaturizer, and she swings her arm around and fires a gun in the room. <laughs> so she's a bit of a putt sometimes, but I do think she comes out of it well in terms of being a fully rounded character who is a lot better than the men in most of the situations they find themselves in. Mm. Better than Jack in a crisis. Yeah, I mean, the only reservations I have with her character is how she kind of swoons a bit too easily. Mm. So I was quite confused by there's a scene where she finds out that Tuck is actually inside Jack. Uh, as a miniaturized guy and then she kind of starts treating jack as if he is tuck that didn't make any sense to me and and she kissed him and she's pretty much melting in jack's arms and it just makes no sense to me like it makes me think of her character as just an idiot (laughs) i don't i can't explain it Yeah, Dennis Quaid's charisma is just so powerful that even though he's stuck inside this short, nervous guy, it still sort of exudes out of him and makes him irresistible. It's amazing you said that because I have written down Lydia's only stupid moment underlined and it is that scene exactly and the thing that bugs me about it is not only is she so overcome with her lust and love for Tuck that she wants to get it on with Jack is that she's even left hanging for a while while Jack talks to Tuck and says please switch off all of your listening devices so you can't see what I'm seeing and hear what I'm hearing so I can have a private moment yes and it goes on for quite a while. And meanwhile, she's just left stood doughy-eyed like she's hypnotised by this whole situation from yeah. overhearing this but not caring about it. And you just think, no, this this makes her look like such a stupid bitch. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's the wrong word. I'm really sorry, Meg Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I, it makes no sense to me. It makes no. Like no one could possibly react that way. Ever. No. That was my main kind of uh, reservations with the characters and the, the plot of the film. Also, I guess it's feasible that Jack starts falling for Lydia. Although, ah, yes. uh, I don't know. I just, I didn't buy it. Mm. Surely you wouldn't fall for the girlfriend of the guy that's inside of you. Mm. That's pretty cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he feels protective towards her. And I think he comes to terms with their relationship at the end. I think he's affectionate towards her and it seems to be in a better place when the movie ends. And I do love that line that Tuck has, which is, you know what she sees in you, Jack? She sees me. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. So what miniature piece of fact do you have for us on <laughs> Inner Space, Dan? <laughs> ah, well, the scientist, the main scientist at the beginning of the film, Ozzy, is actually not usually an actor. He's a cinematographer for Joe Dante. Ah. Usually, uh, he, he worked with Joe Dante on The Howling, uh, The Burbs and Gremlins. Mm. The cinematographer's name is John Aura. Someone said we should get him as the, <laughs> the scientist. And Joe Dante was a little bit uncertain, but he, he tried it out and it just worked. 
perfectly. Apparently all of his lines as well were completely ad-libbed, which is incredible <laughs> because he exudes this absent-minded, messy, disorganized scientist and it fits so well. Yeah. They said we need the kind of guy who if he's holding a cup of coffee and you ask him what the time is, he will spill the coffee all over himself. <laughs> and I think somebody finally said, "Well, that's John Horror." <laughs> so, and he's great you really like Ozzy in this movie Mm. and he has a big action scene too (laughs) he does he does also another bit of trivia he uh, was the cinematographer for Honey I Blew Up the Kid oh so another kind of tie in with miniaturization slash enlargement (laughs) enlargement yeah wow so many connections in this movie and that's our trivia yeah Speaking of other characters, uh, what did you think Mm. of the villains of this film? The villains are a wonderful collection of frequent Dante collaborators. We've got Fiona Lewis, who we saw in The Fury, and I think this is one of her last movie appearances. She plays Dr. Kanker, who appears to be this ruthless, cold corporate woman who uses men to her own advantage. Mm. And she is working for Victor Scrimshaw, played with relish by the lovely Kevin McCarthy, who, (laughs) I mean, he's callous and cold and he only cares about the money. He's saying, miniaturization, that's the future, Jack. Who controls miniaturization? Mm. Frankly, I don't give a shit. (laughs) I just want the money. (laughs) So he plays this terribly vain mercenary man, real product of uh, Reagan's America in the 80s. But he's sort of slightly ridiculous as well. There's this wonderful scene where he's sort of shouting at his henchman on the phone. I want that thing, whatever, slams the phone down. And you think he's in this really plush, white office that's very futuristic. Mm. And then the camera cuts back to a white shot and it's just 10 feet square yeah, just, of this horrible yeah. concrete <laughs> building. Just just a well-lit corner of this <laughs> ugly concrete structure. Uh, I love yeah. I love the kind of set design for that little corner as well. There's, there's a, a circular glass table, there's pink lighting, he's in like a white suit yes. and there's a giant white fluffy, I think it's a Samoyed dog just sitting yes. on the desk yeah. in front of him. It just it looks just visually amazing. It looks visually amazing and such a wonderful sort of depiction of the kind of aspirational look that yuppies went for in the 80s. <laughs> and of course, Joe Dante just pulls back a few feet so you can see that it's just a sham. And he hasn't <laughs> actually got the resources to decorate his whole building. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They're always undercut and made to look slightly stupid, these characters. Yeah. So it's great fun to watch. They're comedy characters. They're not yeah. all that threatening, except for Mr. Igo, who is actually pretty terrifying, oh. I have to say. Sort of a Bond villain. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I was watching it. Mm. I, I felt like if Terminator was in a James Bond film, Mr. Igo would be that Terminator. <laughs> Did he even have yeah. any lines in the film? He he was just this presence that you just feared. Mm. And he always had these big 80s sunglasses on he's got that sort of almost like army crew cut sort of hair and he's got this detachable hand that has all these very nifty attachments uh, just used for a multitude of torture devices he's got the blowtorch he's got this gun where his finger is the barrel of the gun Uh, and he's also got in one scene but you don't actually really see it but it's I think it's a vibrator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a scene with Fiona Lewis where she says to uh, Kevin McCarthy, yes, I'm very busy right now. I'll have to call you back and hands yes. up. And yes, there's Mr. Igo with a certain attachment and she's in a negligee yes. relaxing in bed. Yes. So there's a relationship going on there. And I have to admit, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> ah, yes. Because also there there is a, a corresponding sound effect in oh, there as yeah. well, but it's mixed very low, but you can hear it. Mm. Just a little bit of a... Zzz, 
little bit of vibrating yes. sound. <laughs> he has some interesting attachments, Mr. Igo. And he does murder someone. I mean, you have him killing the lead scientist who escapes with Tuck in the syringe and then eventually injects him as a last resort into Jack. Mm. He kills him. He murders him in a shopping mall. And it's quite sad and it quite is. a shocking scene. Even though that scene is quite dark and someone does end up getting killed, when the scientist Ozzy is dying on the floor of the shopping mall, surrounding him are just all these people dressed up in animal costumes and it's just hilarious to see and very surreal <laughs> it's so joe dante isn't it these little bits of ludicrousness the sort of thing that made gremlins such an enormous hit in 1984 mm. yeah i guess a little bit of trivia but the actor that plays dr niles he's so he's the the scientist that kind of takes over after ozzy mm. he was in honey i shrunk the kids oh so okay. There is kind of a tie-in between those movies. Yeah, and also William Shallot, who plays Jack's doctor in this movie, was also the doctor of The Incredible Shrinking Man oh. in the 60s. Going back to the villains, I did like how goofy they were. They were sinister and, and conniving, but at the same time just highly funny to watch um, mm. and I loved how uh, in terms of set design how the other scientists in the lab they had shit everywhere there was bits <laughs> of machinery all over the place it was just a clusterfuck of scientific equipment and you go to the villains lab and it's it's just perfect and sterile and everything's clean mm. uh, also in one of the scenes they're in this big glass house and I love the colour palette of that scene. Everything is white mm. and yellow. Mm. And so you've got the yellow juice in these jugs and you've got the yellow yolk of these eggs that they crack and everyone seems to be eating raw eggs for some reason. <laughs> yeah, um, it's revolting. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got this white fluffy dog. Everyone else seems to be in white suits. It's just a wonderful scene to take in visually. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful film to look at and you, they really do use colour to delineate characters. Mm. And we can't really talk about the side characters, the henchmen, without talking about Robert Picardo's role ah. as... The cowboy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Such a weird character. <laughs> so wonderful. Robert Picardo is probably best known among fans of science fiction for playing the Doctor on Star Trek Voyager for seven seasons. Oh, right. But he began quite often appearing in Joe Dante movies. So he was sort of the, the lead werewolf in The Howling. He's in Explorers in three different roles, I think, including a couple of different aliens. Mm -hmm. And he's such a wonderful comedic actor. And he plays this, I think he's meant to be Libyan. Oh, right. <laughs> a Libyan arms dealer who is so enamoured with the American West and that vision of masculinity that he dresses up in these ludicrous like leopard print cowboy boots yes. and this hat. And they have this whole scene where Lydia has to sort of woo him in order to get information out of him as to where this chip is, this stolen chip that will help reverse the miniaturization and get Tuck back mm. to his normal size again. It's a wonderful sequence, hilarious. Yeah, I love that scene as as well because he's doing this dance on the dance floor and these these really <laughs> outrageous sound effects over the top of them so it's just like <laughs> as he's kind of pretending to lasso <laughs> Lydia uh, and he throws his hat away and it's like it's, it's ridiculous but it's so good at the same time it's hilarious Bob Picardo is just effortlessly hilarious and his hair is awful he, <laughs> he asked for Gaddafi hair and that's what he got it's this horrible sort of brown curly full head of hair yeah like Bob Ross kind of perm yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Later on, you have a scene where it's a bit ridiculous, but Tuck uses facial muscle alteration to make Jack look like the cowboy, mm -hmm. which uh, I'm not sure whether I believe it. And you ask yourself, why would they be able to do that when they were initially supposed to be injecting him into a bunny rabbit? Yeah. What were they going to do to the bunny <laughs> rabbit? <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> the bunny rabbit looked like another bunny rabbit. Oh, Why? my God. 
I don't understand that. But anyway, that's the one part of the movie where it kind of jumps the shark a little bit, but you go with it because you then have a wonderful scene of Bob Picardo pretending to be Martin Short pretending to be him mm-hmm. and he nails it he it's does. really funny he does <laughs> i was also very very impressed with the the adr the dubbing that they had to do for those scenes because it's it's still mm. martin short's voice but it's so flawlessly edited together like i didn't even notice it it's amazing yeah it's very well done and you have that really cool scene where uh, he initially emerges from the bathroom stumbling out in martin short's clothes and lydia talks to him and he goes round the camera and then he is replaced by real martin short but you only see him from the back so that bob picardo can run around the set Mm -hmm. go all the way back into the bathroom take off all of his clothes tie himself up and lie down in the bath so that when the camera goes back with lydia to look in the bathroom bob picardo is in the bath tied up again so it's such a wonderful piece of sleight of hand yeah because it's all done in one take as well yeah like they could have easily done it in a much simpler way and having different shots Mm. but because it's one take it's so engaging to watch because you're constantly kind of (laughs) it it kind of pans across the room and, and focusing on lydia and then going into the bathroom and then the big reveal like it's seamless like you don't even think oh yeah it's the guy you just believe in in the ridiculous of the story and the plot some of the other effects i found maybe not so convincing right so i felt like the third act of this film was a little bit just uh beyond goofy so the bad guys get shrunk 50 percent. so there there are these little humans running around they sneak into the back of the car of jack and lydia they're um, zooming away so these two little humans scrimshaw and kanker are trying to stop jack and lydia from driving and they've got their hands around their their eyes and stuff but you can tell those are not real hands <laughs> no. no one would ever believe those were real hands they're no. just obvious dull hands yeah. and the, i think they use forced perspective as well so the, the back of the car is actually way 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 back yeah and so they are there but because they are so far away they look like little humans and then they're holding these really long arms so you can tell that they've incredibly long arms with plastic hands on them oh i just thought what is going on with this movie did they run out of budget what the hell yeah it's a bit ludicrous and i think it was because of their determination to get as much of it in camera as possible they didn't want to do opticals so all of the stuff inside the body doesn't have that much by way of opticals and that scene is using the same sort of force perspective techniques that they used occasionally in lord of the rings to make the hobbits look sort of three quarters the size of the humans so it's not very successful (laughs) but i think the film has built up so much goodwill by that point that you just kind of roll with it and the ridiculousness of when victor scrimshaw for example jumps over the top of jack and he's in his lap and there are just these two like ventriloquist dummy legs kicking in front of jack's (laughs) face it's just so hilariously funny and ridiculous that you kind of roll with it yeah it's not ant-man and the wasp level effects it has no 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 not at all another scene that i wasn't i wasn't really that impressed with was the fight scene Mm. so mr igo has been put into this weird mechanical suit thing with a snapping death claw Mm. uh, and he's been miniaturized and injected into jack so there's this battle between mr igo and tuck and i just thought this is really clunky. Oh. It didn't really have as much excitement as I wanted it to have. And the end was really quite morbid as well. So Mr. Igo ends up <laughs> dissolved <laughs> to a skeleton <laughs> in, in, in the stomach acid of Jack. I was like, whoa, okay, this, this film really got dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jerry Goldsmith tries to lighten the mood by playing sort of xylophone notes on the soundtrack for the skeleton emerging <laughs> from the stomach acids. And of course, Jack 
belches. So. Yeah, I also love that line as well that Tuck said. Uh, I think he says, Jack, I think you've digested the bad guy. <laughs> so they try to make light of it. I also love how this film pokes fun at itself. Mm. So there's this robot arm that is used to <laughs> place the chip into the machine to start up the miniaturization process. Yeah. And it's a very overly complicated, way too many movements, sort of robot arm that kind of <laughs> bzz, 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 bzz around for no apparent reason just to put it into this machine. And then the second time it happens, uh, I think Jack's trying to like just... Just let, just give me the chip and his robot arms just like moving around for no apparent reason. It's hilarious. And then the third time it happens, I love that this film can really poke fun at itself because this robot arm again is just <laughs> waggling around and the scientist is like, I don't have time for this. And he just grabs the chip and just puts it into the machine himself. And it's oh, and stuff like that in this film that really, really makes me laugh out loud. Yeah. It's not taking itself too seriously yes. but it's taking itself seriously enough so that when you do have an emotional payoff like Jack and Tuck meeting each other in the flesh for the first time and Jack just wants to shake his hand but Tuck goes in for the big bear hug mm. because he's so thrilled to see his friend and so grateful to be alive it actually means something it's actually yeah. quite a warm and lovely moment you're really pleased for them mm. Mm. so even though it doesn't take itself too seriously it, it takes itself seriously enough that you feel something for these characters in the end yes 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 so I mentioned score. Shall we talk about Jerry Goldsmith's score for this film? Yeah, I may just wax lyrical for a very long time, <laughs> as we said. <laughs> Goldsmith and Dante, it's one of the great director-composer partnerships, I think. They made eight films together from The Twilight Zone, the movie, to Looney Tunes, which was a film that Goldsmith did when he was really suffering with cancer uh -huh. and I think it's the last film he completed and I think it's a testament to their friendship and their partnership creatively that he came back and did that movie despite how poorly he was at the time and I think it's because Goldsmith understood and could deliver all the different musical elements that Dante would need for a movie because it tonally it's just such an odd combination of elements. It's an action adventure, it's a science fiction thriller, it's an exploration of a previously unseen world, mm -hmm. and it's a rip-roaring comedy with ridiculous characters like the cowboy. Mm. And Goldsmith can deliver music for all of it. Mm. And what's more, he can do it in such a way that it actually feels like a cohesive whole. Mm. It's by turns thrilling, wonderful, hilarious, heartfelt, romantic, and all swept through with the same combination of synths and orchestra that he was really good at during the 80s. I just love it. It's a prime example of why I love Goldsmith so much. Mm. I cannot believe how well he masterfully balanced tone in this film. Mm. It's outstanding. The chase sequence with Ozzy trying to flee Mr. Igo was a, a very tense moment, but it, it still had the sense of liveliness mm. and not just 100% dread. It was kind of fun at the same time. Yeah. He, his use of percussion in this movie is just... Wow, just bravo, just amazing. It brought suspense. It made things menacing with Mr. Igo. Yeah. Uh, it was just a really, really good use of an orchestra. And it's the sort of score you listen to and you just feel excited. Yeah. And especially the stuff for all of the explorations of the human body. It's that sort of magical sense of wonder and mystery and adventure that you get from his score for uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture is very similar to his material for exploring Vija. You know, he knows how to do this stuff, but he also knows how to do it in a slightly different way each time and tying it all together thematically. <laughs> yeah, Jerry. He is much missed and this kind of film scoring is much missed as well because you don't get this mm. that much in movies now. No. 
because it was iconic at the same time. There was very clear thematic material, mm. the cowboy kind of music. <laughs> every time the cowboy character appeared was super cheesy, but it suited that character because that character was super cheesy. He was, yeah. He's a pretend cowboy, so you get a pretend synthetic Jews harp and a synthetic whistle <laughs> and percussion, and it just sounds ridiculous and stupid just as, as the cowboy is. Mm, mm. And then you get a big sweeping string theme, quite a long-lined melody as well for the relationship between Lydia and Tuck. And you think, is that going to work in this movie? But it does. It yeah, still does. And it, it does. climaxes at the wedding with this soaring rendition on strings. And it's really magical. It really is. And a prime demonstration of just why Goldsmith was the best at what he did. Yeah, I, this is definitely uh, in my top 10 favourite scores of films. Wow. I'm so pleased. <laughs> no, I really am because, yeah, the whole, the first Joe Dante movie we watched together was, yeah, that, that didn't go well. So for you to, um, yeah, get a thrill out of this and love Jerry's score makes me very happy. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure your stomach acids have been boiling in anticipation as you've been waiting to see which favourite things drop from the robot arm of the Moobly Awards. <laughs> Best quote. So my favourite quote, it's not really, not really the quote that was my favourite, but just the acting of that quote was just <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever seen on film. Uh, so, Jack... He's hearing voices in his head because Tuck is talking to him. He goes to the doctor and he's waiting in this room. And there are two other people waiting to see the doctor as well. And so he keeps hearing these voices and he's trying to work out, oh, are you talking? He turns to the person beside him. It's like, no, no, I'm not talking. He turns to the other person. He's just trying to figure this out. And while <laughs> Tuck inside of him is trying to explain to him, no, I'm in you, I'm in you. And then Jack... <laughs> just jumps up and he exclaims, Oh God, somebody help me. I'm possessed. And it's just <laughs> the most ridiculous, exceptional piece of acting I've ever seen. And I, I was laughing so much. I had to, I had to pause the movie because I, I couldn't contain myself. It's a fantastic comedic scene and it's shot in one take, one continuous right. shot. Yes, yes, yes. So it's so much like a comedy sketch. It's just these three people on a sofa in a waiting room mm. and such a wonderful set of performances from all three people. Mm. Apparently they did shoot it with extras once oh. and it wasn't funny. Right. So they shot it again with two of Martin Short's uh, friends from the, the world of comedy and oh. the result is just gold <laughs> solid gold <laughs> it is. well my favorite quote oddly enough is from the scene afterwards where he's talking to his doctor the wonderful william shallot and says i'm hearing voices and i think i'm possessed what's the cure for that the doctor says well in medieval times the remedy was to flay the skin off your body with brands of fire i've no idea what the current thinking is <laughs> Again, it's just William Shallot's performance because he's obviously had to put up with Jack for a very long time mm. and he's just gotten so sort of dry and sarcastic yes. at this point. <laughs> it's great. It's such so a deadpan delivered line as well. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> it really, is. <laughs> really is good. Most, most 80s moment. For me, the most 80s thing about this movie is the fact that the antagonists are corporate espionage uh, experts. Yeah. It's, it's not like a serial killer or an evil government or a secret organisation or anything like that. It's just a company. And mm. I think given that Robocop came out the same year, I think the evils of 
corporate Reaganist America are definitely the villains mm. of the 80s, for sure. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, my most 80s moment for this film was definitely Tuck Pendleton's character. Uh, I just find that sort of <laughs> wisecracking, womanizing, smooth talking male lead was just in every single film in the 80s, especially action comedy. <laughs> and I, I think of Harrison Ford or Mel Gibson, like oh, the gosh, male yeah. lead was always that sort of character. And yeah, Tuck Pendleton was that character, very 80s. Very 80s, yes. Although at least in this movie, he's a little bit rounded off towards the end, so mm. he's not quite so much <laughs> of an ass. Yes, yes. Best hair or costume? Countless amounts of best hair and costume in this movie. I think everyone <laughs> has the best hair and costume in this movie. I, I mean, in terms of really classic 80s hair, Meg Ryan in this movie... Oh, yeah. Wow. How much <laughs> hairspray did they use on her hair? It looked like <laughs> something you could hold up buildings with, you know. It's It was so kind of that really shiny hairspray kind of look, uh, <laughs> as if her hair was metallic in quality. She was a walking fire hazard, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, and my favourite outfit is her outfit when we see her for the uh, second time when she's at work. So apparently your average journalist about town would wear an enormous power suit jacket in charcoal grey with stripes, poofy shoulders, a tiny, tiny leather blink-and-you'll-miss-it miniskirt with a vast studded belt on it. Yes. A white shirt with poofy sleeves, enormous earrings that look like twisted strips of metal, and metal bangles and leather gloves in the summertime in San Francisco. <laughs> it's just this big, leathery, big-shouldered 80s ball of 80s mm. walking down the street. And this is her outfit for going to work. Yeah. <laughs> I do not pay that much attention to my work outfit. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky if I wear trousers. <laughs> Favourite scene? Well, I feel kind of embarrassed to say this now because you kind of rubbished it, but my favourite scene is the climax of the movie. Oh, no. Where we're cutting between this ridiculous battle in the car between Jack, Lydia, Victor and Kanker. And they're doing this stupid battle with marionette figures and, <laughs> and cutting between that and Mr. Igo and Tuck battling in their pods. Yeah, and all the special effects and slamming and falling down the esophagus into the stomach and mm. Mr. Igo ejecting from his pod. And yeah, I thought it, I thought it was good. I really like it. Yeah. I find it exciting and ridiculous in equal measure. So I'm laughing and excited. Um, so I thought it was a good summation of the movie. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think Goofy a step too far for me. <laughs> Just a bit too goofy. Okay. <laughs> what was your favourite scene in that case? I loved the supermarket scene with Jack. So he has this recurring nightmare where he's working at the supermarket and he's serving this uh, lady with orange hair and, and he's scanning these items and they're, they're far too expensive for what they are and she she says I don't have money for this and then she reaches into a purse and pulls out this tiny gun and then he wakes up but then he is in the supermarket uh, in a later scene and this is is coming true this whole nightmare is <laughs> is being imagined in front of him and he thinks oh my god this is a dream this is a dream meanwhile tuck pendleton is inside jack doing these electromagnetic <laughs> pulses or something which are messing with the scanner so that's why the items are astronomically more expensive than they actually should be she reaches into her purse and she pulls out this gun, but it turns out to be a lighter. Yes. So, But Jack at this stage is inconsolable. He's freaking out. His world has been turned upside down. And he, he's like, aspirin, aspirin. And then they, they give him a bottle of aspirin and he just starts chomping down on 20 pills. And it's hilarious. His acting is so perfect for the scene and I loved it. Yeah, it is funny. And there's some great lines in there. And when he's chomping on the aspirins, <laughs> the, the nightmare lady says, hey, I'm not going to pay for those now. <laughs> 
the late great animator Chuck Jones, who for some reason is in the queue in the supermarket, says, I don't blame you. Who would for $800 a bottle? <laughs> most cliched sci-fi moment. Well, I, I guess the most cliche sci-fi of this movie is, is the lab just chock-a-block full of blinking lights and machines with knobs and <laughs> faders and all sorts of things that you have no idea what they do, but they're in there. And that's pretty much every sci-fi movie pre-90s. <laughs> yes, it's very true. And actually, my most cliched sci-fi moment is that scene. And it's the fact that the pod has to spin when it yeah. miniaturizes <laughs> with lights flashing. Why does it have to spin? It always has to spin, Conrad. <laughs> Everything has to spin. <laughs> Why? I love that on the commentary track, somebody asks this question and Dennis Murren, the uh, ILM special effects man, says, I've, it looks good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love how they achieved yeah. that, though, as well, because they just fast-forwarded the footage. And it looks, yeah. it looks very, very convincing. It doesn't look like fast-forwarded footage at all. No, it's because, yeah, they open the shutter for a long time, so lots of light streaks. It's really disorienting. Mm. But I'm pretty sure Tuck would be dead in that circumstance. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the blood would just be oozing out of every single orifice <laughs> if he was spun at that speed. It's terrible. <laughs> Favourite special effect. For me, without doubt, it has to be all of the internal body explorations. Mm. And I think my favourite one, oddly enough, is the fat cells made out of jello. Because who would have thought? But it's brilliant. It looks exactly yeah. the way that you would expect them to look. Yeah. And it was cheap and easy to do. Mm. It's great. I love it. <laughs> I really love the look of them. Uh, my favourite special effect was actually the uh, the Jack to Cowboy transformation. Oh, yeah. You see Jack and his cheeks are just inflating like they're, they're <laughs> balloons or something. And it, I guess they must have used an animatronic head or something, but it looks really bizarre. And then he starts shaking yeah. around, uh, similar to all the horror films that ever came out of the 2000s. Uh, that's fast-forward, head-shaking kind of effect. But you see kind yeah. of glimpses of, of this transforming face and, and it's all distorted and you have, like, his nose is too big or, like, there's extra wrinkles or his eyes are massive. It's a really well-done scene. And even though you could kind of figure out how they did it, it was still very effective. Yeah, it's actually work by Rob Bottin, he of The Thing. Oh. Yeah, so those change heads, they're all uh, Rob Bottin's work. And it's what I love about those shots is that while the heads are sort of spinning and changing, the camera is slowly panning around it. So it's obvious that it's a live effect, that it hasn't been done in post. Oh. It's actually happening on the set in front of you. It's, yeah, right. Yeah, it's great effects. I love it. <laughs> Best sound effect. I really liked it's it was a very simple sound and it's just a very short scene. Uh, but this is after Mr. Igo has shot Ozzy with his finger gun and he and there's a kid <laughs> standing next to him and he looks at the kid and he just raises his hand and blows across his finger and there's that wonderful blowing across a gun barrel sound that sort of hollow almost sounds like he's blowing across a, a bottle, the top of a bottle. Uh, and I, I, also that was a reference to Rambo as well. And the kid oh. is kind of dressed like Rambo. He's got this plastic toy <laughs> machine gun. Uh, it's just, that sound is such a satisfying sound. Yeah, it's great. It is. Oh, for me, it was the magical moment when Tuck is looking at his unborn child inside Lydia. And you hear this lovely sort of echoey baby talk while he's oh. looking at the fetus of his child and it sounds like distant muffled whale song right, so you get the sense yeah. of being in this weird underwater world with this unborn baby and i just thought that's such a clever way of giving voice to this life that you're seeing in front of you i thought it was yeah. lovely <laughs> most funniest scene well we've talked about it already it's the doctor's waiting room scene it is just side-splittingly funny, that whole sequence. Every single line, every pause, every awkward look. It's beautifully done. It's all in one take, and it's fantastic. And Martin Short's capper, I'm possessed! <laughs> it's just fantastic. It's a great scene. I love it. 
How about you? Yep, agreed. That scene. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've i already mentioned it in my favourite quote, so... It's a great moment. It really is. And that's our movies. Is anyone interested in my opinion? Oh, Gary? How long have you been there? When did you do Spaceship 73? What? That was our Christmas episode. Hang on, weren't you there? Yeah, since then. Well, we're doing Inner Space now. Uh, Gary, what did you think of the movie? I've not seen that one. Ah, great. Thanks, Gary. Welcome back, listeners. It's time for the final verdict. Should Inner Space, the forgotten 1987 science fiction comedy adventure, be re-enlarged and released from its pod to marry Meg Ryan and live happily ever <laughs> after? Or should it be dropped into the stomach acid-filled oubliette to be devoured and forgotten forever? Dan, you hadn't seen this movie before. What did you think? I think out of all the movies that we've done on the podcast, this is the most fun I've ever had. I have not laughed (laughs) so much in a film. The comedy was perfect. I think the strongest part of this movie is the characters. Mm. I love the character development. I love the character interaction. I like the goofy villains and the ridiculous <laughs> Mr. Igo and his detachable hand. I, I also laugh <laughs> because his actual hand attachment wasn't a functioning hand. Like it didn't even move. <laughs> it couldn't grab things. I love the story. I I thought it was silly but still serious. The score was phenomenal. Just a absolute tremendous joyride from start to finish. Great film. <laughs> Well, you're not going to be surprising as I recommended this movie in the first place and I was so keen for you to see it. I am overjoyed to hear that you had such a good time watching it. This was one of my go-to movies as a kid and I never understood why it wasn't a huge hit. It should have been a huge hit. It's Joe Dante, it's Steven Spielberg, it's got fantastic effects, it's hilarious, it's a fun time to watch. It's got Meg Ryan in one of her earliest roles, being goofy and endearing and lovable. It's got the most incredible industrial like magic effects that stand up to today for the most part. Certainly all of the stuff inside the body just looks incredible because it's practical and it's shot beautifully. And yeah, it's a great story just in terms of how it resolves these two lovable characters that are just put together. They learn so much from each other and they both benefit as a result. And it's just such a good, well-rounded, well-written, fantastically performed and effectively directed movie. Mm. And I do not understand for the life of me why it isn't one of these films that people keep talking about from the 80s. When you think everybody sort of lavishes so much praise on The Goonies, which was sort of neither here nor there at the time when it came out but now everybody sort of fantasizes about it and gets mm. all gushy and and I think Inner Space should be one of those movies that we look back on from the 80s and say yes this is fantastic summer fun time movie making yes. at its finest and I definitely think everybody should watch it if you get a chance if you're feeling blue put this on you will laugh yourself silly it's hilarious It's such a good time. (laughs) Really is. (laughs) I think we're in agreement. I don't think we need the coin in this episode. (laughs) Let's set it free. So much spinning and flashing lights. (laughs) Buy in a space. So I guess now we need to turn our attention towards another reprobate from the Oubliette. What do we have for the next episode, Dan? Well, we actually have a sci-fi horror. It is the film directed by Ken Russell. Altered States. Ooh, I haven't seen that. So yes, a lot of psychedelic spiritual awakenings beckons us, I think. Ooh. (laughs) 
Can't wait. <laughs> and if you do want to spiritually follow us, you can find us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Movie Oubliette. Indeed. And if you would like to share your psychological awakenings with us via email, we are movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And as always, please rate and review us and share us with all your friends and family. Yes, miniaturize us and inject us into your friends phones <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks for being with us everyone bye for now see you later would I be in a doctor's office if I was feeling all right